2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Mortaza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. We're glad to have Joseph Allen Boone with us. Uh, he's the author of a wonderful book called The Homoerotics of Orientalism. And today uh, we are honored to have him with us to talk about the book. Uh, Joseph, welcome to New Books Network.
1: Uh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me
2: let's just get started with a very brief introduction uh, about you and maybe in your introduction you can tell us uh, how this book also came about. This is one of the most important books in the area of uh, orientalism but it's quite different from uh, other typical books in the field such as the books such as uh, Joseph Massat's Desiring Arab or Edward Said's Orientalism. So This is called The Homoerotics of Orientalism, and it's quite a large book, and I'm guessing it took you about 20 years to put all the materials together. So tell us about yourself and how the book came about.
1: Okay, uh, happy to do so. Um, In terms of my professional affiliations, I uh, early on identified myself as a specialist in the novel, as genre in its uh, English language permutations from the early 18th century through present times, uh, so I'm a literary scholar by training, uh, and that work has. Always, since the dissertation, been inflected by my interest in issues of genre and gender and uh, sexuality, uh, which over the years and decades has leaned more and more in in a queer context as queer theory has come into play uh, and influenced the literary and cultural studies fields. Uh, my work has moved from very specific studies of the novelist form to then larger for cultural formations like modernism uh, to, in this book, expanding to really be a cultural study of 400 years of representations, uh, written and visual, high culture and pop culture. Uh, that uh, I argue uh, illuminate uh, the ways in which West and East have othered each other in eroticized terms, particularly ones that involve uh, fantasies or realities of male homoeroticism. Uh, now this book came about. I'll go ahead and you know lead into that in an interesting way that uh, sort of glosses what you were saying as my it's twenty year. Or- gestation period, where just by happenstance, I was reading, and this may have been the early 90s, uh, Lawrence Durrell's Alexandria Quartet. A student had recommended it to me for a modernist course uh, in which we were looking at modernism and sexualities. And he said, I think this, this magnum opus uh, by Lawrence Durrell is filled with, seems to me sort of queer, homoerotic stuff. So, of course, I wanted to read it. And that was my int- initial interest. What's uh, What are all these subtexts of homoeroticism, male homoeroticism doing in the work of this? Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of a funny way to say it, but uh, Lawrence real has a reputation as a womanizer. And and this book is, uh, yeah. the, the four books that make up the Alexandria Quartet appeal to the la- to a large majority I think heterosexual readers; it's filled with, with uh, sort of expectable uh, uh, sexual excess, uh, but within that, the, all the myriad male and female couplings that the four novels represent. It's this curious subtext of, of, of homoeroticism, uh, both male and female, and it's thinking, what is it doing here? And then it's all done. Me, well, of course, it must relate. Uh, to the context, the fact that all oh, of this is being contextualized in a mythicized Alexandria, Egypt, uh, in the world, the period of the sort of Second World War. And uh, that led me, actually, to read seriously Saeed, which I just had skimmed before. And, you know, delving into uh, Edward Saeed's masterwork of you know, gave me a certain critical terms. for looking at this, the way in which the Middle East becomes this screen on which Western minds often project fantasies of what they think they can't have at home and seek abroad um, and attempt to, and it becomes an act of appropriation, of course. It's part of the definition of Orientalism. Uh, uh, aggrandizing the other for your own purposes, uh, or for giving an expression to your forbidden fantasies. Uh, within Said's context, though, I noticed uh, that it, by and large, that eroticized the metaphor relationship of West and East, and East for Said, of course, means the Middle East, uh, uh, largely speaking uh, is heterosexualized where the the West is represented as or represents itself as the masculine conqueror of this effeminized uh, supine ready to be penetrated uh, e- 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 uh, exotic East and I thought well all fine and good but how does that feed into the homoerotic currents other than ones that would simply, you know, uh, feminize uh, the queer figure itself. And um, so that led to, to my first attempt at this book, uh, which was uh, simply to look at Western representations of the Middle East, and I was really focusing on the more colonial period, so in 19th and 20th centuries. And that was, you know, that, that was an interesting project. Uh, it, it sort of was, its outcome was foreordained in that you, you know, the, the punchline was always there. Here's the West once again, albeit now in a form of homoeroticism rather than heteroeroticism, you know, uh, using the Middle East And it's fantasies of Middle Eastern sexuality, in essence, for its own uh, fantasies. And um, what happened was, uh, I'm sorry, this is a long explanation here. But what happened was um, I became chair of my department for many years. I put the book aside. When I came back to it, uh, it was really the late... It was around 2008, something like that. Uh, I looked back at what I'd done at it and thought, oh, this is too predictably post-colonialist and it's sort of thrust, uh, maybe outdated in its sheer emphasis on Western representations. Who cares if we think already that they're going to be, they're at fault and whatever for the way that they're projecting things on the other. Uh, But... In face of saying, I don't think I like my old material that much. I don't think it goes far enough. Uh, I was delighted to find the number of works just then that were appearing uh, by Middle East scholars on Middle Eastern sexuality and those deep histories thereof. So that gave me one new resource to read at. I was on a fellowship at the Huntington Library, so I decided to research their, their archives. and that was sending me increasingly to 16th, 17th, 18th uh, century travel narratives and, and such that were enriching my own stereotypes sort or of perception of what what these Western projections onto the Middle East in terms of sexuality were uh so two things happened that expanded my frame of reference one was beginning to account for this whole 4 to 500 year period of interchange encounters between uh europe and the middle east as uh the middle east opened uh in the early 1500s to more and more trade and and access to the west and then uh, so the time period expanded, and then I became more and more interested in looking at as much as I could uh, Middle Eastern texts themselves that went back, it, it even predate the, uh, the 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 period in which these Western narratives began looking at the Middle East with it with an eye to. Uh, what sexual perversions are going on there kind of thing. Um, and I, so I, I ended up in this book with a very, not a totally different argument, but I was much more interested in accounting for not only what these projections by Western travelers fiction writers, etc, on to the Middle East were about when it comes to their perceived vision of sexual relations between men or men and boys in the Middle East. but how those very representations were always already framed by pre-existing Middle Eastern narratives and social cultural histories that were in part inflecting those Western, uh representations and you know it let it, it led me you know on one level to see that these were not simply fantasies projected by Westerners but fantasies intermingled with maybe misread but nonetheless perceived social realities uh, throughout, the Ottoman Empire, for instance, uh, that were inflecting their uh, Orientalized versions of what they were represent, re- representing. Uh, so, in essence, this book, as opposed to my early work when I was beginning this project, attempts to be very contrapuntal in its reading. I borrow the term from Saeed, uh, in its reading of. Western and Eastern representations and context, uh, and to make room for the crossovers continually happening among these uh, regions in order, in some sense, to destabilize those two easy oppositions of here's the West, here's the Middle East, or here's... Heterosexuality, here's homosexuality. Um, uh, Identity versus acts in terms of uh, defining uh, sexual identities and stuff. Uh, So I think the project uh, became richer, became more cognizant of contradictions that are not necessarily explained away. Uh, And hopefully dismantle some of the sort of rhetoric that we find too often in public, the public press when it comes to the East and the West, where the two are always seen as somehow always opposite, instead of things, uh, you know, entities that have touched on and influenced each other and in terms even not only sexuality, but even in terms of uh, homoeroticism, Uh have certain things uh, in common.
2: Uh, you've raised a number of points that I do like to unpack as we go forward. Um, so if I'm, so if I if I want to sum it up, is that well, according to what say, East has always been the East. East has always been orientalized and sexualized. But your argument is that. Uh, it's not always a fantasy of the Westerners. There are also stories within in the Orient, within their literature, art, cinema, poetry. Uh, that has a lot of those representations that Edward Said is, is only ascribing to the West. And so I guess that's where your work departs from, Edward Said. Right. And... Um, you, in the book, let's start with a story in the book. Like you, you open the book with, with an example of a three-minute uh, pornographic film from 1920s or 30s. So how does this film speak about the, the overall argument in your book?
1: I, I opened the, my uh, preface with three examples from sort of what you call pop culture, low culture, because sometimes I think those most graphically make apparent patterns that then sort of invisibly insinuate themselves and in the public imagination. And in this case, I came across a six minute 1930s French pornographic film uh, t- titled Tube." It is written, uh, which seems the perfect straight Orientalist fantasy where um, a Western man who <laughs> who also his name Dick Dicky and has a camera one of those old-fashioned cameras that you know projects for he makes his way into the harem uh, he breaks into a harem and this is realizing the Orientalist dream the Western Orientalist dream of penetrating the mysteries. Mostly all fantasized of what must happen with all those women, you know, at the disposal of of the sheik kind of thing. Uh, so he's there; just a few women are there. He proceeds to have sex with them, uh, at which point the sheik comes home, interrupts him, and uh, as a punishment. Uh, for having sex with his, his wives, the members of his, con- his concubines, uh, uh, the members of his harem, uh, he subjects intrepid Dicky, the western photographer, who's been taking pictures of everything, uh, he, uh, to sodomy. He sodomizes him while he makes the western guy the late his manservant. So you have this moment, intense moment of male, male, male sex happening for 30 seconds. And then it goes back to heteronorms, Uh and where everyone's just having a delightful orgy as in any pornographic film. Uh, and uh, what to me was so telling is that you have this sort of ellipsis or parenthesis and the, you know, it just right in the middle of your typical straight Orientalist fantasy penetrating, the harem with all this phallic force and and, and indulging in the delights of the other forbidden sexuality here, forbidden meaning a plenitude of female pleasures to sample. But in the middle of that, in that parenthesis, is this totally homoerotic moment. Uh, And that happens repeatedly in a lot of Western Orientalist texts about about, uh, the Middle East. It seems to be focusing in on sexual license in general and, and the fantasized pleasures of female plenitude, but then yield for a moment to a scenario or unexpected sighting of what the Westerner is compelled to deem male-on-male sexuality. And so I'm asking, why does that occur so much and, uh, yeah, we, you know, all cultures eroticize other cultures and uh, but why does homoeroticism so often enter these fantasies of the Middle East was my basic kind of question there. And that sort of film seems to epitomize a way it's it's almost like, um, a, a fetish there, you know, it's there one minute and then it disappears kind of thing. Uh, and, uh, it's sort of like the ghost that, that, that can always peek out of the closet and show its head. So to me, that film is a great example of how the homoerotics of Orientalism often insinuates itself into Orientalist fear.
2: Yeah. Uh, so in in research about Orientalism and homosexuality in the Orientalism, the Western, um, Western scholars... Western scholarship is, is is usually dismissed as an Oriental work, and you talk about two critics uh, in your book. One is uh, Najma Najmabadi, and the other one, Janet Afrey, who make a, who, who point this who point out the same thing. So I want to know if your research, your critique, has been um, challenged or has been let's say dismissed as another Oriental representation of the West of the East. Yeah.
1: Fortunately, I've escaped that by and large, and most of the reviewers of the book have themselves come from Middle East studies departments and have been quite laudatory and grateful for my attempt, at least, at least to make uh, Western and Middle Eastern representations sort to of speak to each other rather than exclude each other, uh, and see the potential for that expanding a field of study for all of us. But sure there have been some, uh, no one's called the work Orientalist. Uh, there've been some people who think it doesn't go far enough in creating that conversation to which, which I'm, uh, I think it's true, too, because of the own limits of my knowledge of Middle Eastern sources, uh, uh, which have relied on what's been translated very recently or things that I've had translated uh, uh, personally for me uh, and things like that to enrich my sense of the past sexual histories and cultures of the Middle East. Uh, but it is, it's a delicate kind of thing. Uh, these critics you were citing... Are sort of you know, humorously say you know, just to raise the term homosexuality in discussing that Middle East will get some people's approbation, uh, or or, you know, fear that you're you're raising a taboo, or immediately categorize that person as Orientalist for even raising what they fear is a Western sort of stereotype. Uh, I think the best one can do is just be very truthful and honest about your position, about how much you, what you do know, what you, the limits of your own knowledge are, and uh, to make clear that when you are describing things that are, are of a sexual nature, uh, to be, one, very straightforwardly, but not voyeuristically clear. And doing that by making sure that your readers or people who are listening to you when you're speaking are convinced that you, your use of explicit materials are really, you know, central parts of your argument. Uh, so that you're not just sitting back saying, oh, look at this scene unfold and that, that scene unfold or look at this licentious representation, but that an integral part of an overall argument. And so it's actually worked out incredibly, more positively uh, than I expected in terms of the, the reception of this work.
2: Um, and I think one of the great things about the book is that uh, you have stories and examples from both East and the West, and you you, you study them side by side, which brings me to the next question. Uh-huh. So in the in your book, you have this story of Tyre and Tahib, um, and you read it against the tale, the, the martyrdom tale of um, the British monk and theologian, uh, Um So I was... The story of Plages is more or less well-known to the Western audience, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about Tyre and Taib. And when you study these two stories side by side, so what what does it show about the treatment of homosexuality in, in, in both the West and also the Middle East?
1: Okay, and uh, the, first I would pause on what you said just to say that I generally when I talk about these rela- homoerotic relationships in Middle Eastern texts, so, I Tend to always use homoerotic or male male sexual relations and not homosexual because that's where you can get into trouble with people thinking you're imposing a Western ca- sexual category onto uh, a, 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 se- a sexual cultures that may have male male romantic and sexual you know uh, existences patterns but. Where the terminology is different, uh, but what is neat about looking at, say, this—I uh, think it's early—it's seventeen. No, it's a seventeenth century, mid-seventeenth century um, Ottoman tale. Uh, is that it is essentially a, a captivity story where two per a uh, two Ottoman youth are captured by infidels, which means the Europeans, uh, and who then fall in love with their captors, and their captors fall in love with them. Uh, and it's a happy, ever-ending story, because it, uh, to take out all the various uh, suspense things and stuff occur in the tale, which is really long first tale, is that the two captors, the Europeans, are miraculously converted to... Islam, and sail off to Istanbul with their two boys. uh, And they live happily ever after uh, in the rose garden of delights until they reach the garden of the heavens or something like that. And so it's a captivity tale with a happy ending. Uh, the, The European... It's an anonymous manuscript I found uh, that it was written contemporaneously uh, at the Huntington Library. Concerns—it's just the opposite. A French youth has been kidnapped by by uh, Ottomans, where he's beset by the licentious sodomitical. Not the master of the house, but the the overseer, uh, the the youth in his good Christian way refuses all advances to the point of martyrdom. So he's eventually he's eventually uh, 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 put to death. And uh, when you read the two against each other, you find all these unexpected congruences and differences that make. On one hand, even the Christian fable becomes rather implicated in its own subject matter because in... Upholding the holiness and chasteness of this Christian youth who holds out against the infidels' sodomitical desires, the narrator spends an inordinate amount of time uh, describing the boy being stripped of his clothes and his beautiful gymnasium-like body, you know, burning at the stake or whatever. So, you know, there's this voyeuristic implication into what you're supposedly horrified by, which is sort of the homoerotic desire. But the narrative is sort of betraying itself. Well, e- even in the happily ever after Turkish tale uh, uh, that I was talking about, there's a certain social realism that creeps in time and time again. This fantasy story, uh, the the most I, pertinent of which would be that in the tale, the four the two pairs of lovers go back to Istanbul and live happily ever after. But nothing's ever mentioned of what would be the social reality of Turkish male lovers, which would be that it also have their wives and their children. And you lived a script where you had both family and your beloved often. Uh, So it creates its own fantasy uh, that you might not realize as much as fantasy until you put it into a larger context.
2: Uh, uh, let's also talk about chapter two, talking about some stereotypes about Middle Eastern's homoeroticism. You, 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 there, are, there are many of them and you talk about one of them, which is the, one of the most common is the beautiful boy, the beloved of men, which again is related to the uh, question I just asked previously. Uh, and also about male male sexuality in the region. This, there are also other uh, tropes such as a uh, hypervirile man or a eunuch. Can you talk about these stereotypes and how do you extend uh, readings of these stereotypes to call into question these stereotypes or assumptions?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it became so apparent to me the more and more research I did that there are these sort of trans historical types that you find in these representations, both by Westerners writing about the Middle East, and these go back to your early travel narratives through sort of high-flung, Byronic, romantic writings and stuff. Uh, But they are also there many of these uh, sort of tropes, which become stereotypes through repetition and middle uh eastern literature as well and one of those is that the trope of the beautiful beloved um loved by uh, uh a lover a male lover and one of the things i tried to show there is the degree to which this you know western stereotypes would often use that as a way of damning obviously the relationship uh What you find in reading these texts is that the the age of the beautiful boy uh, can range from 13 to, in one case, I found it where the beautiful boy is a 38-year-old or something person. So A, being the beloved or boy is a more uh, plastic, elastic Uh, state or range than one might think. Uh, Other stereotypes sort of uh, fall apart when you look at multiple of these representations. Uh, The stereotype would be that the beautiful boy is more or less epicene or effeminate. And and therefore he can fulfill sort of the female quote unquote role in a pederastic male adult beloved youths sort or of relationship. But in point of fact, uh, some of these beloved objects of desire are wrestlers, are policemen, are soldiers, are, are, are uh, street toughs. Uh, so, and, you know, very masculine and macho, little bravado things. And likewise, this gets into another stereotype that I try to... Um, decenter when I take up the trope of sodomy that uh the, the, the stereotype is if there is in the history of the Middle East a pattern for male male sexual relationships it is that of an older the older male penetrating the younger youth who substitutes quote unquote for the unavailable woman due to prescriptions on uh Uh, male-female contacts, say. But what I try to show is, or what I find in the evidence, is that even those roles of active passive players are not, in much of the literature, necessarily hooked to the age difference of the players. So you have reversals where it might be the the male poet in a verse who's looking forward to being penetrated by the younger, but very randy youngster. Uh, There's also a a large number of particularly miniaturist representations that depict egalitarian relationships where the partners are same age. and again, that breaks the stereotype of age differentiation being a necessary component of uh, of the way in which sex between men can be imagined in the Middle East. Um, the other stereotypes, I, the one of the eunuch is in many ways much more a Western stereotype. The West, from Enlightenment forward, is just fascinated by the figure of the eunuch because it sort of interferes with all one's assumptions about what is a male, what is masculinity. And and the very fact that the eunuch is the one male person who has egress to the female harem, you know, drives these Western... Uh, men crazy in their fantasies and then at least the questions of but what does you know castration really mean what does it affect and things like that which then gets into uh, deeply anxious western uh, anxieties about you know masculinity at its core you know what makes you a man or not Um, so that one is one more more I've seen in the western literature eunuchs are ever-present in Middle Eastern literature, but they aren't weighted with that kind of symbolic freight of, oh, this is really meaningful in a kind of way. Um, yeah, so, and the, 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 one of the other sort of tropes I examined that you find a lot in both uh, both literatures, East uh, and West, is that of the bathhouse or the hammam is a site for for male-male tryst uh, and it, again in, in my recounting of both you see how images of one infiltrate the other and how each sort of uh, it, 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 well, how the fantasies sort of become intermingled with the social realities uh, thereupon.
0: this episode is brought to you by sax.com at sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe
2: Uh, and in treatment of homosexuality in Eastern literature, well, Eastern scholars generally interpret that male bond as a metaphor or as a yearning for union, for the divine, rather than homosexuality. I remember when I was in high school, we, would, we, we read a lot of poetry, Persian classic poetry, and whenever there was even the slightest connotation of male-male bond, it was quickly interpreted as this is not carnal desire. This is not like earthly love. It is spiritual love in poetry. It's or it's not even earthly wine. It is a spiritual wine, which is a yearning for the divine. So how how do you did you come across anything like that, or how do you respond to to this glossing over, let's say, of homosexuality? Because I guess and maybe you could also respond to the next question that I had as well, which is when 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 uh, researching homosexuality in the Middle East um because most of the countries are islamic countries so you there, there are challenges in both researching those items or let's say recasting the trope of homosexuality as something which is not physical or carnal at all
1: yeah yeah no of course this is this is the traditional interpretation say of the ghazal the uh, hazal the the love poem uh and it's it's some it is very endemic to Sufi uh, practices, where entering the trance-like state that gets you to a spiritual level involves gazing upon the beautiful youth, uh, uh, kind of thing. And that's that all that's true. That this is one way in which beauty and youthful male beauty is used, right, in the literature. But it's not the only way. And to me, the analogy. Uh, between would be between the way that you were taught the poetry as a high school and the way I would say taught uh, Oscar Wilde's *Dorian Gray* in high school, which was it was really about all these other issues, uh, and 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 homoeroticism was never mentioned, and the text is rife with it. So it's not just about identity and the doppelganger self and. Uh, all these things, because uh, I have high schoolers that, you know, come into my class and we're reading Dorian Gray. And I, we never saw any of this when we were in high school, but wow, it's there. And it's a bit the same case, I think, with that older academic reading of a whole history of Arab Ottoman and Persian poetry which is fixated on the beautiful youth uh where sometimes yes it is all about the cosmos and reaching this greater union but sometimes it's too explicit to be anything but uh this uh, uh, intimating a physical reality and you can you you can you get this by if you gloss the poet's biographies sometimes with the poems and you and you real and, and you in the biographies you'll have mention of you know their companions or lovers and then you can find the names uh sort of hidden within the poetry itself say or in um you know the physical representations you simply get explicit scenes of male male intimacy, romance, and Congress that you can't deny. It's right there visually. Um, uh, The poetry, like all good romantic poetry, makes very subtle what's there, but uh, it still exceeds the limits of what would be simply spiritual. There are too many sort of material traces there that uh, uh, bring it down to earth, as it were. But, you know, I would like to say in a sort of um, idealistic way that the spiritual and the earthly are always connected.
2: Yeah. And, and how about, in your introduction to the book, you mentioned different sources you use. You use travelogues, photography, cinema, literature. Now, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by the cover photo, which is a photograph by Lerner and uh, Landrock. From pronouncing the names correctly, so you use a lot of examples uh, from photography, photographic erotica, let's say, and mm. this is more or less a modern genre at the beginning of the twentieth century. So what, why, uh, from from written text, travelogues, literature, you move to uh, visual culture. You can talk about visual culture, maybe on photography as well.
1: Yeah, uh, uh, I hope everyone who's listening at least goes online and looks up the cover, so they see this arresting photograph of this uh, quite, uh, the only word for it is sort of like beautiful young man. Uh, he's, there's nothing really you know, and I'm using Western terms here, but it's not effeminate or feminine even, it's beautiful in a way that defies some of our categories, I think. But of course, it's a stage studio photo, which we've got to take into consideration too. This isn't just someone walking down the street who was photographed. Uh, This is all orchestrated to meet the gaze of some uh, hypothesized viewer who's going to buy this image, because that's what Leonard and Landrock were all about. There is an influx of photographers in the early 20th century, mostly German, it's interesting, uh, to the Middle East, who took pictures of everything and sold them to whoever would fit that category. So, you know, you'd photograph the Holy Land, so you'd have all the sort of Christian religious sites that would sell back in Europe. You would just have, you'd have uh, pictures that were more, you know, the market or something like that, which you know, it would sat- satisfy people's curiosity just about the, what the visual look of a place might be. Uh, but you also had a very lively commerce in erotica. Um, what one critic calls ethnopornography, because it's, these are photographs per, in a way using the guise of ethnography. Oh, we're showing different cultures as a way to sit, to suggest, um, uh, the sort of forbidden or hidden sides of other cultures as well. Okay. These are the, these are the sexual mores or whatever. And so you have lots of what would be predictable quasi soft pornographic representations, women in the ha- harem lounging nude or half nude um, sometimes male, female couples that, that that's your greater category, but you had some of the artists who were doing holy scenes and doing these sort of, like I'm you know, Harim seems also doing these pictures of nude youth, male youth, uh, sometimes fully nude, sometimes uh, tantalizingly half-clothed, sometimes in couples. Um, and these were obviously selling to some nascent, gay-aware community in the West, who's buying these, you know, because it's inciting certain desires. Um, So these become another, you know, text in that whole history of homoeroticizing of the quote unquote orient. But I tried to show how a lot of these pictures also talk back to the audience who might be buying them, that, that, that it's too simple to simply see these as na- n- natural representations and we can read in their staging all sorts of ambivalences and subtext that, again, add nuance to our picture of East-Middle East sexual uh, traversals or crossings over. Um, I'm trying to think of other Images that would be, well, I'll think about it. and I'll bring it up again if, if there's a specific image. It's hard on on a podcast to describe an image effectively uh, in terms of analyzing kind of the work it's doing. But I'm sure the readers there are just incredible. Some of them are incredibly interesting images, and some of them have you know great artistic merit in their own right. It's and this is. As, as a case, case, of point to some of the, one of your earlier questions about, um, you brought it up with the Iranian uh, critics, but, and what becomes salacious if one doesn't present it carefully, um, there, I, there are some of the photos that would lend themselves to thinking this is truly pederastic or pedophilic. And it's worst case, these, you know, photographing these young, nude, pre-adolescent guys. It turns out that what our eye, our Western eye reads as pre-adolescent isn't, that the lack of pubic hair is actually a cultural, uh, you know, thing of, of shaving oneself that makes the youth look pubescent to a Western eye, but isn't. Do you see what I'm saying there? That's sort of complicated. But uh, so the viewer is tricked into getting something that he thinking he's getting one thing, but is not. And knowing that, knowing that this is actually the same model, the 17 year old model that's being has been used in a variety of photographs, uh, puts a whole different slant, not a wholly different slant, but it also speaks to the agency of that model. And being able to work to all sorts of scenes uh, with the photographer in hand.
2: Um. Uh, when I first saw the color photo, when I first came across the book, I thought it was the picture of Prophet Muhammad. And the reason is that because when I was a kid in Iran, there was a very, very similar... There's, there's, there has never been a blanket ban on representing Prophet Muhammad in Islam. So and that picture is it still circulating in some households. So it was a young boy, you yeah, you might have seen the picture, you're nodding Yes, <laughs> young boy this like, group, yeah.
1: Or not it, it's fascinating because there is an article that's been written about this where the same model here and some different shots, but similar you had the turban and the flower on the side. Uh some of those photos made it into um, the Arabian Peninsula and the around the 40s and were adapted as watercolor and pastel sort of prints that were then marketed as pictures of the prophet where the article talks about every home could, had framed versions of this. And so it's... It, it's just a wonderfully deconstructive sort of moment to realize that images of the prophet and the spirituality that that indicates has its origin, that representation in an appropriation or borrowing of a image from. Created by Westerners for homoerotic gain and profit. Again, so again, it shows how sometimes all the what seems impossibly oppositional collapses mm. and, and has a there's a conduit that connects them.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a perfect example. And when I was a kid, around six or seven, years, I do remember walking to some houses. That picture was framed up on the wall. And it was like, because I was a kid, somebody told me that for the first time, this is a picture of the prophet, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah, a, I was a kid. So the, was, the,
1: sorry. That, yeah. that, a past, to hear yeah, your, your eyewitness sort of account to what this <laughs> article was doing. And, you know, this is actually, I thought about reproducing some of those images to show them in contrast. Uh, but that was one of the, the places where I thought I didn't want to go too far in offending sensibilities by showing what had been taken as a representation of the prophet is now you know put up side by side. So that was you know that was one of those instances in which I chose to exercise some decorum. Um,
2: yeah, and I remember that some people even treated that picture as something holy, like Quran, because Muslims don't touch the text. They, they when they pick up Quran, they kiss the book. So some people even when they pick the picture, they, they kissed kiss the pictures, treated it as something holy. And to me, it was just I was a kid; I didn't know anything about homosexuality. So, but but like when I was a teenager, I thought, well, that that picture doesn't really go well with the description or the way Prophet Muhammad, for example, the stories about the wars he took part in, uh, uh, and the way he brought all the people of Mecca together, you know, to establish Islam. So that picture doesn't really go with that uh, person that i have in mind but yeah when i saw the picture that was the first thing that came to my mind there you go that's the origin (laughs) um let's talk about another part of the book in your book you have plenty of examples from turkey and and egypt and some examples from uh, persia as well uh so what is so fascinating to particular about those two countries and uh, I do like to ask the second question as well, which you can address as we go further. Uh, so Iran or Persia has always been, again, this oriental other from the perspective of the Arabs. Like sometimes, yeah. uh, because maybe it's a, uh, it's, it's not an Arab country, it's a, it speaks a different language, which has a lot, of com- a lot in common with Arabic. But in terms of uh, the religion, they are a minority in Islam, they are Shia. And they're more, in a way, if that's the right term to they're more liberal in the religious ideology compared to really our orthodox Islam. And that's why, again, you, you have sometimes stories of homosexuality being attributed to Iran by Arab writers. So first, maybe you can tell us why you decided to focus on Turkey and Egypt so much and also talk about the representation of the other from the perspective of the, the Middle East, like Persia is the Middle East other as well.
1: I, I agree with you there. Uh, it's uh, it's interesting. It, it came down to source material in a way, looking for what congealed around certain themes that then I could make the nexus for chapters. I mean, at one point, I thought I might have a chapter on the African Maghreb because, you know, there's a, all this literature about the Morocco and Tunis as well. Uh, and I think, it, you know, at one point I thought of a more sort of, Arabian sort of section and all, but I didn't want it to be just geographical I thought okay I'll use a few examples and it seemed to me that I found more overlapping text when I focused in on Istanbul or Constantinople and then when I focused in on Egypt in, ter- uh, in terms of its uh, sort of either Alexandria or the Old Kingdom and I um, and in each case has lent themselves to stories that I felt I could gather a lot of material around um, in the case of the Ottoman Empire centered in Constantinople um, you have these tropes well, tropes of amplitude and bounty and sort of an excess of polymorphous desire. I guess that uh, both the city is typified by it, say in all these rep- older representations, Middle Eastern ones, and then picked up by Europeans. And then it, it filters into the way that sexualities themselves are elliptically uh, uh, alluded to in those texts. So I run a gamut of analysis from um Early taxonomies of sexuality in uh, Constantinople in the empire through to the French writer Pierre Lotis' book, Asia Day, which is supposedly about a soldier falling in love with uh, another man's wife, a woman he steals from the harem. And puts up his concubine but as a text it is inundated with references to a, a, a subculture of, homo- uh, of homosexuality in istanbul that the narrative is always just glimpsing or just closing the door on or just alluding to the fact that he knows more than one should know if one's not part of that culture kind of thing. And so in a sense, the relationship with uh, Azia day, the woman becomes a veil for another story that's being told, which happens in a lot of these uh, texts that center around Istanbul. Uh, and I take that right up to this monumental, I forget 17 volume encyclopedia, popular encyclopedia that this uh, uh, Turkish scholar created, which is littered with homoerotic material, and yet yeah, this is in everyone's house, just like the pictures you were talking about on the, the walls of people's houses, uh, but done in a sort of innocent way. That sort of they always pass, but still, if you, if you sort of ferret out the examples and line them up, you think, "Whoa, uh, what's going on here?" So that was the the a lot of the nexus of the Turkish Constantinople Ottoman Empire. Chapter. And the one on Egypt came naturally because of so many Westerners who went to Egypt, like Gide, um, Flaubert, Durell, all focusing on it, uh, that made it seem apt as a category. Where I do the most with, I think, the Persian heritage, I mean, it's littered throughout uh, when I refer to some Persian poetry and texts that. Existing counterpart to the Western representations I'm bringing up. Uh, but it comes up most forthrightly toward the end of the book, where I deal with uh, mini- the miniature tradition in detail. And most of my miniatures are Persian, some are Ottoman, a few come from Cairo, uh, of Arabic uh, sort of origins. Uh, but that visual sort of uh, heritage or archive uh, is pretty incredible. Uh, for what it shows, once you learn how to decode images, how to, you have to read them differently than we read Western art, just on an aesthetic level, but then on the level of content too. But once you sort of crack the codes, you you have more than ample evidence of a sort of visual representation of male love. Um,
2: And uh, a, a surprising thing in the book is the appearance of Norman Mailer, right? Sexual, what does he have to do with uh, homoerotics of Orientalism? why do you bring him up as an example in the book
1: well it, he he it, Norman makes his guest appearance in my chap one of my chapters on Egypt uh, because uh mailer uh, wrote a novel called ancient evenings and I think it was in the it was in the very late 19th 1980s or early 1990s, uh, that he thought was his masterpiece. Uh, and the critics didn't, uh, I must say. Everyone was anticipating it as the big one. Uh, this is, you know, going to be the sum of his writerly prowess. And I use that word uh, deliberately because uh, Mailer is associated with nothing if not machismo. Uh, and and Yet, in this story of ancient Egypt, and this, I mean, he's mythologizing a whole, you know, what he thinks ancient Egypt religions and culture was like, of course, but it is inundated with homoeroticism, and it's sort of like, it's, you know, Mailer's repressed coming out, Uh, you know, it's not to cast any kind of aspersions on Mailer's sexuality, but to it illustrates a way in which once focused on a Middle Eastern locus, in here one, you know, historically, as, as, as historically embedded as ancient Egypt, it triggers. And this, you know, about heterosexuals, imagination, all of these visions, not only of homoerotic relationships between men to be abhorred, but ones in which he imaginatively participates to a degree that is fairly staggering um, as he depicts the relationship between his major character and one of the, the Pharaohs. I think it's Ramsay II. the um, second it's all very complicated. Uh, I only recommend the most daring of you to read this novel because it um, everyone has a ka or different uh, re- or more than one reincarnation of self, so you have multiple selves of any self interacting with other selves, and since everyone's identity boundaries are permeable, of course anyone can enter anyone else's body. So that's a kind of sex with you know multisexed sort of uh, relationship anyway but what's interesting is there's all this agonizing stuff about domination and submission between the general and the narrator character for like 300 pages that's the plot each time and it ends in forcible rape each time that turns into pleasure uh, for the submissive figure and then it's almost like Mailer's realized he's gone too far. It's like that pornographic film I discussed at the beginning, uh, where it's like you got to overlay this now. Like, uh, with, oops, I've done enough of this, maybe. And so uh, it suddenly becomes. Uh, heterosexual love triangle where Nefertiti of all characters the, uh, becomes the beloved object. It's it's one of the Pharaoh's, pharaoh's concubines that the narrator falls in love with next and starts to forget the Pharaoh. So anyway, it, it, it works things out on heterosexual terms in the last 200 pages. But it's like, you've had your fun and now we go back to the norms that we realize You know, are the sort of building block of Western civilization, uh, which is his use in some ways. I guess that's his his Egypt is the foundation of civilization, which is of us. But again, it's that that I guess what makes it fascinating for me is the degree to which, with so many Westerners, whatever their proclivities, when they come into an encounter with this sort of unknown or semi-known Middle East that they're prone to over-sexualize in the first place, it's almost as if a door opens in their imagination that allows them to entertain uh, erotic relationships between men that would have never been permissible in any other context.
2: Um, so as a last question, uh, the book is, the book is filled with a lot of examples. And one of the ones that I really liked are the examples of Turkish and Persian miniature, and some of them are quite suggestive. What, what did they suggest to you in terms of your main argument in the book?
1: Uh, yeah, well, I, I really had to do my research here cause I'm not an art historian. I certainly didn't know the miniature tradition, uh, until I started reading up on it, uh, But what's fascinating is the levels of male homoerotic desire that are depicted in images. And sometimes it can be very subtle. I'm looking at a page now that uh, that the reader can't see, uh, 316 for you. But often images would be uh, disaggregated from some original source and pasted together in albums. And... There's a page here where <clears throat> there are four single shots of different youth. There's you nothing know, necessarily erotic about that, uh, but it's a way that the compositor has put together these pages so that images are talking to each other and bringing youth into Congress that you know begins if not to. St- so, well, there's a, a suggestion that there's meaning in the arrangement, and that arrangement does bring types together in ways that create sort of like in that bottom edge, a relationship across the page. Um, a similar sort of uh, reading of arrangement can be found in some Western albums of collectors of Persian miniatures who you can tell Via the, the and the images that in one of the museums I went to are all loose now, but you could tell b- via the wormholes that have been eaten into the pages, how the collector arranged the images. And then you could see that he's at absolutely putting all the beautiful boys together, all the two guys together scenes together. And so he's making his own sort of erotic taxonomy through his arrangement of images. But then there are other images that are much more uh, specific. Uh, if you look closely enough, one of my favorite ones, and this one's easy enough to describe in words, is a bath scene in a Turkish bath. And it's actually based on a very famous uh, 16th century bath that much was written about it, what occurred there. And it, on first glance are all these people gathered around what looks like to a big hot tub to us in the water on the sides, talking to each other. There's a barber there. So some of them are getting their heads shaved. Some are getting scrubbed down, you know, everything that should happen in a bathhouse, uh, which were ubiquitous. Everyone went to bathhouses. Um, And, uh, you know, sort of looks like, you know, guys frolicking. It's good spirited fun. You know, some guys are wrestling in the water and things like that. But then you start looking closer and blow and blow up this little teeny miniature. And Lord knows how you got paint brushes fine enough to do things like this. But then you'll realize, like, say, for instance, there's one barber kneeling be- behind the boys whose head he's shaving or young man whose head he's shaving. And his robes have parted. And so his genitalia are all there apparent. And there's no reason to make that apparent unless you, the artist, wanted to make them apparent. Uh, but it takes, a, you know, a certain eye to find that. And then same with, then you realize that the two ewes diving into the water, they're in their little loin claws, but actually the loin claws are transparent. Uh, and so there's a difference between your surface reading and then you look closer kind of reading. Same with another image. Uh, it's also from the Topaki uh, museum archives. Uh, really great image of it's called After the debauch or something like that. And you have some guys, there, you have a, one older guy who clearly is drunk and fainted on one side of a lily pond. Then you have two youths who are just chatting, uh, sort of half clothed. Uh, and the intimation this is the aftermath of one of those sobe or garden parties. It was a whole Ottoman tradition where men lovers would bring together their youth, their youths and then and, and all read poetry to each other and eat fruit and drink wine and whatever. And But this is really depicting it as what the after the balch kind of thing. And what you notice if you look closely again are that the boys' undergarments are all transparent. And you can see their there tumescent penises through the the – the transparent material. And, and so it's not overtly pornographic at all, but if you look closely, they're in states of arousal. Um, so there is, you know, it's not just beautiful boys anymore. Uh, so, you know, using your eye like that, you find lots of interesting things. Another way of reading the miniatures that I found fascinating were all these images of two boys together and kinds of embraces that you can also say there it's a you know, in Middle Eastern culture, it is very typical for men to hold each other's hand or arms around the waist and all, and one shouldn't over eroticize that. That's not fair. Uh, but if you look at the way these boys' limbs are entangled, they imitate the patterns of Arabesque design, uh, which in, in the purpose of that kind of design is to show how everything is interlocking. And uh, just the direction feet, arms, legs uh, sort of intermingle and where one limb disappears and another pops out and all makes, you know, makes the two into one so that you have a sort of kind of Congress happening uh, in the visual uh, symmetries uh, that are being created through the arabesque of uh, the bodily limbs without it being overly sexual. Uh, but then it, but then you'll see that one's holding a book in one hand but that's a book of love poetry the other's holding a goblet of wine wand that's slowly dribbling out of its face instead so sort of like spilled liquid desire so, so all these things will have little meanings for uh, the original viewers, the connoisseurs that add to the erotic meaning of what seems like you know, youthful play does that give does that be some good examples I have?
2: <laughs> yeah and and uh, uh the pictures that you made like a wine bearer and youth bringing wine that's again in my culture i've seen lots and lots of those images they're printed on uh cups or plates and they're so common and I'm, i was always intrigued when i looked at those paintings myself as a kid again how the most of them look they have the asian look they look uh Chinese and the reason that in iran the miniature art came from china yes yes, yeah but uh but i was always amazed like how the, the way they were represented young quite young and if you know if you put a critical lens on it there there, there are sexual overtones to that as well as you mentioned mm-hmm. uh Professor Alan Boone, thank you very much for this fascinating conversation. And I do encourage our readers to to pick up the book and at least go through it because there are lots and lots of beautiful examples and images. And, And if you don't really want to read the whole book, you can still read bits and pieces of it that speak about the pictures. Thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you.